Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 17, Mindfulness Practice and Depression. So for the last couple of weeks, we were kind of talking about depression, how it comes in many different shapes and sizes. That's because people come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, right? No matter what we're talking about, ADHD or anxiety or autism or whatever, it's going to look different on everybody because we are all unique individuals. And we also talked about, um, you know, the different, many different causes. And we also talked about the distorted thinking that happens with depression, as well as, you know, sort of the biggest detriment or, uh, you know, the biggest horrible thing that happens with depression is the shame. It's not the depression that actually brings us down, but that underlying feeling of being less than defective. That's really what brings us down. And that's true with whatever it is we're talking about with this is fill in the blank. Again, autism, ADHD, anxiety, addiction, whatever it is, it's that underlying feeling that something's wrong with us and that we're flawed that really truly brings us down. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some mindfulness practice for depression. And Rachel Goldsmith-Turrow is the author of a book I use Again, I mentioned this last over the last couple of weeks. I use when I teach uh, a trauma class for the Community College of Vermont. It's a really a fabulous read. So I we were going to talk about gratitude today, and gratitude plays in, you know, with whatever I'm doing in my life for sure. We're actually going to do that next week because I realized I want to do, I wanted to really leave um, our depression discussion on a positive note, you know, in that. Um, Really, it's about having the awareness of something that we would like to work on. Remember, we've talked about this and changing our words. Instead of, I need to work on my depressed thinking, more about, I want to work on my depressed thinking. Why? Because I'm not happy like this. I'm not happy like this. I want to. I'm excited to make a change. We need to really focus on our word choices. You know, it's when we change our word choices, make a conscious choice to make a a change in how we speak, this also helps us to gain some control or some agency, helps us to feel more in charge of our lives, which, of course, the reverse of that has a lot to do with why we're feeling anxious and depressed, that feeling of not having control, in addition to the feeling of being less than. All right, so let's just recap here with... Rachel, she does such a really good job. She says that depression can take many shapes, a heaviness in the chest, a dense fog clouding other thoughts, a powerful inertia that makes simple activities seem impossible, or a feeling that nothing matters. Depression can come sporadically as part of ups and downs or as a pervasive feeling of blah. Depression seems to swallow other parts of our identities, so that we are unable to separate the depressive thoughts and feelings from anything else. Isn't that the truth, huh? She says we become ensnared in the double whammy of both physical symptoms and negative thoughts that intertwine and hold us in their grasp. I like how Rachel says holding us in their grasp because if, if it's yourself or a sibling or a friend or parent or partner or whatever, um, who's been depressed or you're, you're experiencing it through someone you care about, they often use words or synonyms for feeling 
trapped and they usually are, you know, being swallowed into a hole. And I, I like how, I like how she kind of brings that to life as a visual because that is so spot on accurate. The sense of falling into a hole and you can't get out or just being, um, you know, trapped behind something or under something and not feeling any kind of, you know, agency or where to even start to climb out. You know, kind of like that analogy that we used earlier with, um, you know, a, a deep sea diver, scuba diver, if they dive too, too deeply, too fast, they can get the bends, right? The nitrogen. So they lose track of, you know, get all dizzy and lose track of, literally lose track of which way is up. And so they're taught to blow bubbles or watch their bubbles come out of their tank to see which way the bubbles go to know which way is up. And I think anyone who has experienced depression knows what it's like to lose all bearings on which way is up. And Rachel continues that depression is also shape-shifting. It often appears to us that everything is truly and hopelessly terrible rather than a reflection of a condition or circumstance that could improve. One of the most painful parts of depression is a mixture of pain and self-blame that can lead us to think, I feel bad, so I am bad. Or there's something unacceptable about me, my core, my character, who I am as a person. That's the shame we're talking about. And shame, remember, is different than guilt. Guilt says I made a mistake. It's an action word meant to keep us from punching people in the schnozzy or spreading different rumors or spreading rumors, right? Where shame, instead of, instead of I made a mistake, shame says I am the mistake. It's toxic. It's poison. It's a spiritual and emotional equivalent of drinking turpentine for breakfast instead of orange juice. And she says, navigating through depression often involves attending to its different facets simultaneously to the physical feelings of depression to our thinking, and to our emotions. So in just a few moments, we're going to get going with the mindfulness part and how mindfulness can help with depression. And of course, my usual disclaimer is that none of the strategies or um, discussions we have are meant to, in any way, take the place of professional treatment. And they can certainly complement treatment. I would uh, absolutely complement the treatment, but make sure that you, you know, reach out for help if you need it for sure. So, okay, in order to, to talk about what we're trying to combat or lift up or shift out of, uh, I want to first establish the three things we're trying to kind of address here. Okay, so we talked about learned helplessness. That's one of the biggies with depression, actually learning and then believing or incorporating that into our belief system that we are helpless, that no matter what we do, uh, it's not going to get better. So that's one thing we're going to um, kind of hone in on with our mindfulness. The second one is the internalization process, or as I say to my students, bringing it into the living room. We tend to do that when we're depressed, okay? So we're going to talk about the internalizing. And the last one is the counterfactual thinking or the distorted thinking, that um, triangular thinking that comes along with depression and how mindfulness can get us out of, lift us out of, shift us away from these three components of depression. Mindfulness, remember, is also about being alert and awake. It's so, you know, falling asleep while you're being mindful. That's and Now, if that's at night and that's what your, you know, sort of what your goal is, that's fine. But as far as, you know, our, our, our during the day, it's about being really awake and alert and omnipresent. And the other biggie 
uh, with mindfulness is the non-judgment piece. And I love this because a lot of the other, you know, meditations are about creating a thought vacuum. And at least for me with ADHD, that for me, that would be like opening every door and window in the house and inviting the entire, you know, neighborhood and state of Vermont into play, right? That's not going to happen in this lifetime. And I really, really like that when a thought goes whizzing by, it's an anxious thought or a fear-based thought or a, you know, whatever kind of thought, we say, welcome to the human race. Depressed thought goes whizzing by, even after we're making progress. It doesn't mean we say, oh, there I go again. There's my depression. No, there's no judgment with it. It's okay. I've been doing really well. And there when a depressed thought means I had a depressed moment. Okay. Again, welcome to the human race. So what? And who cares? And remember, because mindfulness is about being in the moment, it means we can take it with us wherever we go. Gardening, this is a great time of year to be gardening. It's such a mindful activity. Again, washing the dishes, bike riding, running, not skiing at this time of year, maybe, at least not in the United States. Um, But anything we're doing, just be there, tinkering around, doing house projects now. Just be in your body and tinkering, doing whatever it is you're doing. Okay, so rehash what mindfulness is for a second and how it differs from other meditations that are out there. Though They are certainly also good, of course, for well-being. Mindfulness, though, is different and in, in a sense isn't a meditation in the others in the way that the others are because mindfulness is really about being in the present moment, which is all we have. So if we're not living in the present moment, we're really not living, right? And so anxiety is often about thinking about the future and depression is often thinking about the past and those can flip-flop, whereas being mindful is about being in the present. So for 100% committed to the present moment, theoretically speaking, there shouldn't be any anxiety or depression there. In the, if 100%, not 99 or 99.9, but actually being 100% committed to living this moment right now, um, we should be free of that. And the non-judgment part of mindfulness right off the bat helps to um, sort of diffuse or alleviate the self-criticism that is so embedded in depression, right? All the ways we judge ourselves, all the not enough thinking, all the ways we're not feeling enough or defective and actually often actively going after ourselves, self-deprecating and putting ourselves down in, in a lot of ways. Mindfulness helps to alleviate that and shift out of this very harmful self-destructive habit. As we, you know, sort of shift out of the self-criticism dialogue that often accompanies depression, we shift towards the self-compassion and loving kindness, which is the polar opposite of the self-criticism. And also, as as she says, a pretty robust indicator of where we are with our well-being, along our well-being path, Being, being able to show ourselves kindness and compassion is a very huge step forward towards a healthier uh, existence and a higher quality of well-being. So Rachel says mindfulness practices can help people get through depression in several ways. When we notice depression in a curious way, we can become less personally identified with the depression. 
The depression becomes the weather and we become the sky. Mindfully observing depression can help us to reduce judgment and self-blame. As we cultivate the part of ourselves that is witnessing the depression is distinct from the parts of ourselves that feel inside the depression. We can gain a sense of spaciousness and room for growth. And I'll tell you, this has me thinking of another exercise I do with my students on day one when I do it with anxiety. And, of course, anxiety and depression are kind of like in a married relationship. You really can't have one without the other. Even if, you know, somebody's kind of displaying more depression, usually there's some accompanying anxiety. And also the reverse is true and anywhere along that spectrum, right? So when I do my whole suitcase exercise with my students on the very first day, the idea here is... Let's say, you know, let's say just for our visual purposes, we have a navy blue or again, I can say black suitcase. Dark. If you if you were to write in white chalk depression, or if you deal with something else, write that on there, anxiety, whatever. If we think of it as a suitcase we can set down, this really helps. And I do that physically with them. So they they actually have the tangible, you know, set it down. This can really help us because um, just like diabetes or anything else, depression doesn't completely go away. We learn to manage it just like a diabetic learns to manage depression, Um, perhaps by taking insulin, definitely by managing diet, definitely by managing exercise, uh, as well as all the lovely mental health things that help with yoga and whatever. Um, We learn to manage it. So we can maybe be having a week, two weeks, three weeks, three months doing really well with our depression. We're exercising and eating well, and we've got a good friend circle going. doesn't mean life's perfect because that doesn't exist, right? But we're doing well. Then we have a life thing happen, and there's a setback. Okay, so what? We don't need to identify and say, oh, there, oh, that's my depression again. Maybe it's a life thing that happened, okay? Set the suitcase down. I'm doing well for three weeks. Even if I have a setback, I can set that suitcase down and not say, my depression, I'm depressed. No, the depression I manage, the depression I I deal with has been doing well. I've been doing well with it for the last few weeks or months or whatever. And for someone who has experienced trauma, understanding that depressed thinking is a very normal response to trauma can really help to reduce the sort of cycle of self-blame and self-criticism that goes on. And I'll also mention that, though, not every single person out there who is um, having depressed, having a depressed pattern of thinking, you know, has experienced, not every person with this has experienced trauma. I'm actually doing a big trauma webinar in a, in a couple of days. And that said, um, many people who have experienced trauma, um, depression can be a normal, very normal response to that experience. You know, as Rachel says, kind of in a way that, you know, talking about self-criticism and self-blame, maintain depression. That means, that means maintain depression means like supporting it, right? You almost, you know, feeding it. Whereas mindful self-compassion generates feelings of friendship and solace towards oneself. And obviously someone who's been in a habit, right, which is another word for an unconscious behavior. If somebody has been in a habit of treating themselves in this way, when they're when they first start to treat themselves um, with compassion, it can feel really uncomfortable, and then that can breed other toxic dialogue about how come I'm uncomfortable 
treating myself well. And that breeds more toxic dialogue, right, and shame. So to just stick with it, realize that it's uncomfortable because it's a habit. And there's some stuff there that's in the vault, as I like to say, the implicit memory. And make a choice that, you know what, I'm going to keep rolling. It might feel uncomfortable for now, um, but I'm going to keep rolling because whatever, what we practice, we inevitably get good at. And if I stick with this, I will become more comfortable treating myself well and befriending myself each and every day that I stick to it. Rachel says that mindfulness practices help us to notice the feelings of, of depression and it's lifting within our bodies. During difficult times, our bodies themselves can become depressed. We often feel fatigued and have the sense that small things take enormous effort. Physical inertia can block recovery from depression. It takes energy to try out new behaviors, thoughts, and feelings. Energy that is in short supply during depression. Observing small variations in the sensation of depression helps it to feel less monolithic and more workable. And, you know, by understanding this, we can begin to um, treat our depression and ourselves, really, and our depression in a caring way and acknowledging that, you know, that it's painful, understandable, and not a reflection of who we are, not a reflection of our of our character. So this can help us to feel less depressed about being depressed, if that makes sense. Okay, so as far as how can mindfulness and self-compassion, and they're not mutually exclusive, they go together. We're being mindful, being good to ourselves, we really don't need to say it twice. So how does mindfulness, um, uh, how is it able to, de- to decrease depression? Again, in some people, right? We're not saying it's a, re- it's a replacement. It's an add, add, not subtract situation from professional health. And there's just tons and tons of research out there that demonstrates, um, Rachel says, mindfulness interventions can reduce symptoms of depression among both trauma survivors and others. Mindfulness may help by increasing our metacognition. So metacognition, if you're not aware, means our thinking about thinking, okay? So, and she says our awareness of our own thoughts from a more of a witness perspective, witnessing kind of from like the outside, looking at ourselves, you know, how, our own depressed thoughts and our own kind of depressed feelings and our own depressed behavior, taking a glance at that, kind of, there's like a duality to that, right? So for instance, mindful attention appears to be inversely related to rumination. Rumination, again, is going over and over and over. The woulda, coulda, shoulda, as if only I had not done this, this would have happened. Or if I would have done this, that would have happened, whatever. It actually um, kind of combats that and shifts us out of that. Um, It shifts, shifts us out of feeling stuck in replaying these negative thoughts and memories over and over and over. Mindfulness also seems to reduce depression by protecting us against cognitive reactivity. That's true across the boards. We know whether you have depression or depressed-related thinking, we know that mindfulness in general makes us less reactive, which out in the world just means there's a whole lot less drama going on because when we when we learn to be mindful, it slows our thinking down. So we then become more responsive. Responsive is what we'd rather be, right? Responding is a slower uh, thought pattern, which kind of takes in the facts first, evaluates, then says something versus that knee-jerk reactive 
thing that we do. And when we slow that down in general, not only do we benefit, but everybody around us benefits because reactivity doesn't tend to go, go anywhere good. Remember that um, mindfulness actually changes the brain on a neurological level, which can absolutely help with um, you know, reducing depression and, and staving it off. Remember also that as Minecrafters in training, right, we are on a mission to become the boss, bosses of our brains, right? This is what we are after, reminding ourselves that we are what we think. Thoughts come first, feelings come second, and then behaviors after that, okay? Thoughts first, feelings second. So allowing ourselves to think depressed thoughts is going to lead us to feel depressed or Thoughts of we're not enough are going to lead us to feeling not enough. And other, just remember my usual disclaimer too. We're not saying it's easy. It takes to make the choice first to not want to, you know, live this way anymore, to want to live better and with a more healthier pattern of thinking. And then the follow through, just like a good parent, we need to be a good parent with the mind because again, it's like a toddler. So, and then we talked about the word choices. So here comes something just fantastic. Um, and Rachel has it in here. I have, I have a couple books by Thomas More, and I really like them. And I like how this this mindfulness in the moonlight she talks about. This is about shifting our our thinking about depression, not in any way to minimize, not in any way to minimize, but this is a different perspective. And like they say in the twelve step programs, right? Take what you want and leave the rest. I try to live by that anyway. So Rachel says, in the midst of our moments of pain it can seem impossible to consider that they could offer anything of value. Wouldn't this be true? If somebody's, especially if they're in the midst of kind of identifying with depression, that probably seems like one of the farthest things, you know, or super out of their reach to actually think there could be something of value in depression. Well, of course, uh, most things have a bless in the mess, right? So uh, Thomas More um in the chapter uh, Gifts of Depression, in his book Care of the Soul, he is fantastic. If you have a chance to read him, he's really good. He invites us to approach depression with care, listening, interest, and respect. He explains this stance provides an alternative to a mainstream hygienic view of mental health. The idea that we can or should be happy all the time, uh, that we have that we have a problem if we are not happy and that we need to get rid of the negative stuff as fast as possible. You know, I like that too, because there's something we have like happiness pressure in the United States. At least we, there's happiness pressure. And I'll tell you, this has come up, come up more than once with my students, lots and lots of times where they feel like something's wrong with them. If they're not walking around with a smile on a hundred, you know, hundred percent of the time. And of course that isn't even realistic. And as mentioned earlier with other things, this brings us back to the secondary emotions, right? So if it's not enough to have depressed thinking going on, feeling depressed, now we're feeling depressed about feeling depressed, or that something's just weak or wrong with us because we're feeling depressed. You know, that there's something weak or wrong with us because we're not happy most of the time. So Thomas More argues that being human involves a full array of, of the emotional color spectrum. See, I like this guy, not only because I like him anyway, with his care of the soul and his fantastic writing, I like how he's on board with life as a spectrum thing. 
He says the color spectrum, a palette of both bright hues of blues, grays, and black. Rather than rejecting the darker tones, we can allow their presence and sense of how they might deepen our lives. Right here is kind of like just mindfulness in a nutshell, really, because it wraps around those feelings. And not saying we're residing there. We're wrapping around them with with loving kindness and with non-judgment, acknowledging them. If remember from those of you who have been listening along the way, when we talked about managing the monkey mind, when we put out the welcome mat for these for these thoughts, they also tend to dissipate more quickly. And once again, as Carl Jung has said many times, that which we resist will persist. So, so it's like the more we battle with it, wrestle with it, the more it kind of keeps it alive, right? Or how you hear out in the world when people say, oh, don't give energy to it. They're right. Don't give energy to it because it's like a snowball going downhill, Versus when we kind of allow it to roll through, uh, it's alleviated far more quickly. So once again, this idea is not meant to minimize anything. Okay, It's meant to do the opposite, which is to normalize. Many people, many people on the spectrum of depression um, have experienced this you know, distorted thinking and self-deprecating and ruminating everything we're talking about. So Rachel says, this perspective is not meant to invalidate the pain of depression, but to honor it as real and important. The moonlight of depression may offer us glimpses of the world that broaden the ways we understand our experience, shades that are obscured by bright sunshine. Even saying, I am in the moonlight now, sounds kinder and healthier than saying, I am depressed. And Thomas More talks about these. He says it in quotes, gifts of depression. You know, what a, what a, a different way to look at this. And um, I like this. He says that these gifts of depression may be subtle and sometimes mysterious. They may emerge as shades of patience, compassion for others, humility, new beginnings after loss, maturity, or as learning how to care for others or others during times of suffering. It is unclear what we might see or learn when we allow ourselves to really be with depression rather than pushing it away, criticizing it, or hiding from it. And then Thomas More says, we are not out to solve the dark night, but to be enriched by it. Okay, so here's a mindfulness exercise that uh, Rachel came up with, and it's called Go Small. So in this exercise, she invites us to focus on one very small thing. And she talks about, um, you know, using a penny or, you know, a little rabbit's foot, something that you have laying around, you can hold in your hand and just feel. So she says, depression can feel overwhelming as it swirls around our past hurt, current pain, and anticipation of future unhappiness. Going small counteracts that storm. In mindfulness groups, we often hand out pennies and encourage people to notice everything they can about their penny. If the mind wanders, we gently notice it has drifted and return our focus back to the penny. In the groups, we notice all sorts of new things about pennies, such as the lowercase o next to the uppercase f on the tail side of the penny. Observing a small thing in as much detail as possible 
can shift depression because it changes our attention and promotes our mindfulness skill of being in this moment. Okay, and with this particular mindfulness activity, remember from previous episodes when we talked about the cingulate, which means band and wraps around the limbic system, when we activate the cingulate, which happens with conscious thought, meaning thought that takes actual effort. So if you're used to doing Sudokus every week um, and you're good at those and it's easy, that really wouldn't count because it has to be something that the brain actually has to work towards, like maybe learning sign language or something that's, you know, a little out of your comfy zone. When we actually exercise the cingulate and, and activate it, by having it shift to conscious, effortful thought, the amygdala is immediately um, deactivated, immediately deactivated, which has an, an, a, spont- a right-away response to reduce um, the anxiety going on. And, of course, this is true for um, reducing depressed thinking, too. The limbic system, remember, is in the center of the brain. It's emotional headquarters. So this particular mind mindfulness activity has kind of a direct effect on this. Just reminding, again, reminding that these these exercises and activities, practices are meant to be complementary um, to those who are seeking professional treatment and not in place of it. Okay, so here are the steps. Step one is to just find a small object in your immediate environment. It can be a pen cap. It doesn't really make a difference. Step two is to spend at least five minutes trying to observe all that you can about the object in as much detail as possible. I would also encourage you to close your eyes on this one. And this is because when you eliminate the sense of vision from this, then everything else is more fine-tuned to pick up um, the other details of whatever it is you're holding. Use multiple senses. Well, this outrules that. But vision, touch, hearing. I'm still a fan of closing your eyes. Uh, maybe combined with touch, if you tap the object, smell and taste it if appropriate, uh, the object. When your mind wanders, gently notice where it went and return your focus back to the object without judging yourself uh, for having had your attention wander. And then lastly, after five or ten minutes, check in with, your, check in with yourself about how you are feeling. It would also be a really good idea for you to keep a mindfulness journal if you want to get going with this because you may find it might might start out awkward a little bit and then be kind of cool to look backwards after a week or two or more and see, you know, sort of how you progressed and how how these feelings shifted a little bit. And also just going to throw another one of my own out here because I one that I do with my positive psychology and Minecraft class is uh, mindfulness in general. This can be for depression or just practicing mindfulness because it's good for you. I bring in chopsticks and a bunch of large bags of popcorn and little popcorn holders like at the movies. And my, often my students stare at me like, what is she doing now? And then I usually have to give a, a few chopsticks lessons. Some know and some don't. But basically, and then, I, and then we go on with the class and just teaching whatever the, the other the topic is. And they're sitting there eating popcorn with chopsticks and you realize when you do this it slows it slows the whole eating process down and in my opinion chopsticks slow your life down i eat, i use chopsticks a lot they just slow your life down and so um before we continue with class sometimes students might want to close their eyes but i have them taste the salt taste the texture taste the puffiness 
of the uh, of the popcorn that they were able to put in their mouth, which is usually one at a time with chopsticks. Uh, the ex- this activity has also been done with raisins, I think, because of the inherent you know texture, the wrinkly, squishy texture. And have you? It doesn't really matter what it is. I'm a big chopsticks fan, but as long as you're really sort of getting the experience of the detail, you know, and, and the feeling, you know, what moving around your tongue and, and taste what it feels like, and all the different senses there. Again, when we're actively um, stimulating the cingulate, then the amygdala activity decreases. You know, and this can also work out in the world in another way. And I have an example was just yesterday. I was out on our back deck and I was looking over the, the railing watching the goats and I saw this ant carrying this dead bug upside down that had to be 800 times its weight. It was amazing. And then it started to go over the edge of the deck and was clinging on and it kept trying to climb back up the deck, up, down, up, down, up, down. I was so focused on that ant. I felt like taking a short video clip for like a resilience, you know, little little video clip or something. But I was so focused on watching that ant. All this counts. Conscious thought, it all works. Or just out in the, when you're in an urban area, wherever, and you just notice something small and just take it in. You know, a little gross, but maybe, you know, chewed up gum on beneath the railing in a subway station. You know, just, you know, noticing these small things mindfully is a, is a step in the right direction as, as far as becoming more present in this moment. Another practice is, uh, Rachel talks about, is mindfully surfing the waves of depression. It's interesting because she actually quotes John Kabat-Zinn here, and I was already thinking of him because I'm definitely a fan. He's got lots of books out. One of his best is Wherever You Go, There You Are. And of course, he's got all kinds of YouTubes out and everything. Um, but I'm actually thinking of one clip I show my students with it, a CNN clip where he's talking with Anderson Cooper. And it's really good. It's only about 10 minutes long, the one I have. And he talks about the mind being wired to wander. And he says, think of it like waves of the ocean. You know, at least as long as the moon's around, the waves are going to continue. The tides are going to continue. And so, you know, the obvious solution is if we can't control the waves um, or the moon, right, it makes sense to learn to surf, you know. And I think the awareness of this isn't going away and we need to manage it and learn to manage it or want to learn to manage it or excited to learn to manage it is there's so much freedom in that, right? We're taking control of it and looking to acquire a new skill. So Rachel says, the mindfulness teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, advised us that you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. This surfing involves observing the waves so that we know more about what they're trying to handle and practicing our approaches over and over so that we can begin to navigate the waves more skillfully. Mindfully surfing depression involves exploring the following three questions. Number one, what type of pain am I feeling right now? Number two, how should I try to handle it? Number three, how do I feel right now? So for the first one, what type of pain am I feeling right now? Rachel says it's easy for depression to feel monolithic, but if we pay attention, we can notice subtle variations. She then invites us to take a moment to tune in with our body right in this moment. Where where in your body do you feel the depression? What are your physical sensations? You can take several moments just to observe 
and to be with those sensations. You might notice the way the air feels in your chest, a tightness or dryness around your eyes from having cried, and the set of uh, muscles in your face, and any other physical accompaniments to depression. And this has me thinking of the book Sitting Still Like a Frog by Eline Snell in it. Um, it's, it's for kids. And it comes with its own little little CD. And I use it with college students. In fact, I bought it, I think, three times because eventually I mis- loan it to somebody, misplace it, whatever. But she does a lot with the sitting still with a fro- like a frog. And my college students love these activities. There, uh, there are just so many. She talks about the belly breathing and makes a lot of you know, sort of analogies to the body and helping the child, teenager, or young adult, or let's say older seasoned adult to connect with their body. And then even though we're talking about depression, not as much related to trauma today, anyone who has experienced trauma related depression, um, this is, it's key to try to kind of work one's way back into their body. Rachel then says that the benefit of focusing on physical sensations is that they tie us to our experience in this precise moment rather than to the broader levels of pain related to our past experiences, future worries, and thoughts. You can certainly broaden your inquiry of what type of pain am I feeling right now to feelings, for example, of alone, scared, or heartbroken. If you notice yourself on a train of thoughts or amidst memories, you can try to return to your feelings in this very moment. And returning to physical sensations is often an effective way to make that transition. And then the second one is, how should I try to handle it? And of course, there are lots and lots of choices here. So she says, at times when you're feeling your best, you can ride the energy toward um, recovery by, by engaging in some kind of activity. For me, that might be in the, like now in the summer or in the fall, you know, going for a run or anything active. You know, right now is a great time to garden. That's a fabulously... Um, you know, relaxing thing to do, walking the dog, something like that. When there's maybe a more difficult uh, moment, you might shift your energy towards caring for yourself. And it's a good idea to kind of, you know, think of this ahead of time and plan some kind of outlets for you to feel more comfortable and at and it ease. Again, it might be maybe taking the dog for a walk or maybe just hanging out with the dog and Mindful belly rubbing. I'm a big fan. I'm not making a joke out of that. Actually, I've used that one um, with our youngest daughter, where our golden retriever at the time, Francesca, was more than willing to assume the position for a belly rub. And I'd have her close her eyes and, and, you know, just kind of rub that really soft part on his chest. And before I knew it, in less than a minute, she was breathing in, in sync with him, in perfect sync with him. There are also plenty of uh, loving kindness and self-compassion meditations to do. One, there's one that I really enjoy just just because it's it's just great. You know, just if I'm feeling a little racy or anything like that, they're all over YouTube. They have the bilateral beats, so you need earphones for that because they have to be or ear, earbuds or something because it's you know acoustic meditation music or massage music, if you want to say that. It's just, you know, oh, it's just so relaxing. And then the beats go from one ear to the other. And the idea is to shift your eyes from one, you know, whenever there's a beat, shift your eyes closed, or your eyes are closed, to each side. And it's extremely relaxing. Also the basis for EMDR therapy. This is not that because an EMDR therapist has to be, you know, educated, trained, and certified. So we're not saying that. 
However, for me, when I listen to these with the earbuds and close my eyes and shift my eyes back and forth, it's tremendously relaxing. And even 10 minutes of it um, really is centering. And another, you know, how do I handle this? You can also just be a surfer. You can learn to ride the wave and not trying to fix anything, which is, you know, of course, the basis of mindfulness. It's not judging um, if you're in a place to do that where you can just say, oh, here comes another depressed thoughts. Okay. You know, welcome to the human race once again and let it and just let it ride. And then after, you know, you've surfed the wave of depression for a while, check back in. You know, how, how am I feeling? How's my body feeling? Do I notice any changes? And she says, uh, you might feel different and you might also sense other waves coming. No matter what the circumstance is, you can meet the waves with attention and care. You may consciously note you are practicing riding waves. Each wave is an opportunity for practice and for taking care of yourself. Okay, so here, those are a few strategies for um, reducing the uh, depressed pattern of thinking. And remember, Minecrafters, that our main theme is learning to become the boss of our brain. And then as far as, you know, thoughts go, thoughts come first and feelings come second. And again, there are two choices in this life with this. Either we control our thoughts or our thoughts control us. And then I ask you or ask my students frequently, which is more pleasant? Obviously, controlling our own thinking is huge. When we change our thoughts, we then change how we feel. Remember my disclaimers that no one said it was easy. Didn't say that. And often when I say, you know, happiness is a choice, I'm met with a handful that say, well, I have this, I have that, I've diagnosed this, diagnosed that. And just like we said in the last couple episodes, that makes things more complicated. For sure, it makes things more complicated, yet it is still our choice when it comes down to it. It takes first to kind of become aware that we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, as they say in the 12-step programs. And then, you know, once we have that awareness, we then have the responsibility to, you know, take steps in the right direction. And it's also really important, and I try not to speak in bumper sticker, but, um, or and, uh, you know, as far as we don't want to strive for perfection, it's, it, that's a bar that doesn't exist, right? So progress, not perfection. If we're a little more mindful, better, you know, kinder to ourselves, more loving towards ourselves, we're having fewer depressed thoughts because we're controlling our thinking, then give yourself this gigantic pat on the back, dance in your skivs on top of the coffee table, man. Find a power song. My power song is Think by Aretha Franklin. And I'll tell you, I, I get up there with a spatula or some other big spoon, scantily clad, dancing by myself, one woman party in the living room. I do it all the time. This is a great thing to do. Gets all that that all that good dopamine going and everything like that. So this is what we're talking about, conscious choice making and deliberate living because we make decisions every day. We make active decisions like getting up on top of a coffee table and belting a beat, or we can make passive decisions where the universe just takes care of it. And that's not usually the best answer, right? We want to, we want to, you know, be at the steering wheel of our life. We want to be in the driver's seat. Okay. So um, just to wind up here, um, Eckhart Tolle, I just kind of found this a couple minutes ago, actually. Uh, he, someone asks, asks, asks him in his book, so how do we, how can we drop negativity as you suggest? And he says, here's his answer by dropping it. 
right? Big surprise. He says, how do you drop a piece of hot coal that you were holding in your hand? How do you drop some heavy, useless baggage that you're carrying? By recognizing that you don't want to suffer the pain or carry the burden anymore and letting go of it. So, Minecrafters, thank you for listening this week. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.